Acts chapter 2 this morning, Acts 2, we're going to do verses 14 through 36, and I know some of you are breathing a sigh of relief. You are like, finally, we are out of those first 13 verses. Indeed, we have been to Babel and Sinai and back into Acts and just seeing how that big picture comes together to tell us about what God is doing in Christ Jesus and what he's doing at Pentecost. But in order to summarize and to, to bring you up to speed a little bit, what's happened at Pentecost is uh, the disciples are hanging out, Jesus has gone up, and they are waiting for the Spirit to come down. They don't have any idea about the timetable upon which this is going to happen. And so very suddenly, to their surprise, on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit arrives, and we're told that it, it comes like a mighty rushing wind. I think of the windstorms that we had a few weeks ago, just really intense, howling shake your windows kind of wind gets your attention like a hurricane and then we have just some really weird stuff going on right they, they see in verse 3 you see they see tongues that are like it's like light that looks like flames of fire kind of goes above uh, their domes a little bit it's hanging out above their heads and then they all start talking in languages that they never learned and so they spill out of this house that they're in into the, the streets or maybe the temple, we're not really sure which, but they've got the attention of all the Jews that have traveled to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. The Pentecost feast was a celebration of the harvest. And so uh, what's beginning to happen is the Holy Spirit is harvesting or collecting what Jesus' death had purchased and his resurrection had guaranteed people Worshippers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And part of what's going on, why they are speaking in all these different languages, is to bring attention to that fact. That the gospel isn't just for the Jewish people. It's for all people. That Jesus isn't the king just of Israel. He's the king of the world. And so they're, they're looking around and these Galileans who probably... You know, they have an accent, probably like a southern draw, you know, you know, they wouldn't know these languages, be like guys from the bayou, you know, I don't, I tried to do it last week, follow Jesus, y'all, and they're like, you know, but it's in their own language, you know, it's like in French or Mandarin, and they've got that accent, and he's like, what is going on? And Peter is going to answer that question today. He's going to answer the question they ask in verse 12, what does this mean? Peter's going to answer it, and he's going to answer it by preaching a sermon. And now, some of you probably read ahead, and you went, man, Peter preaches the first Christian sermon, and he does it in like 30-something verses. It took me five minutes to read this. You know, Justin takes forever. I want to point your attention to, I think it's verse 40. It says, and with many other words, right? So this isn't all that Peter said, all right? We've just got a little snapshot of his sermon here. And he's going to explain Pentecost. And what's really interesting is right here, I expect him to preach to us a sermon about the Holy Spirit. But that's not what he gives us. He gives us a sermon about the king who pours out the Holy Spirit. He gives us a sermon about Jesus. Because that's the point of the book of Acts. It's the point of the whole Bible. And it's the point that Peter drives us to in verse 36 to say that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And so that's our main idea this morning, that Jesus is Lord. That's the point of all the time we're going to spend together in the text. And the exhortation is going to follow on the heels of that. 
I want to exhort you, I want to encourage you to, I want to implore you to pledge fealty, faithfulness, loyalty to King Jesus. To follow him as Lord of your life. So let's, let's pray and ask for God's help and then uh, we'll get into the text a little bit. Your outline features for you the three points of Peter's sermon. He was a good Baptist, I told you. Uh, three points, right? He says Jesus is Lord because he's the one who pours out the Spirit. Jesus is Lord because he's resurrected from the dead. And Jesus is Lord because he has ascended to the throne of David where he rules and reigns. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather together in your name. To come before you as friends rather than enemies. It's only by your grace we don't deserve it. And God, this Sunday morning, the beginning of a new week, we ask you for new mercy. Thank goodness your mercy is new each and every morning. And not only in the mornings, but in the evenings and at afternoon and and at mid-morning. Your mercy is always there for us. You are always pouring out upon us grace upon grace. Everything we have is from you. Thank you. We are, each one of us, helpless. Each one of us lost without you. Each one of us has failed this week to be holy as you are holy. And yet, you've loved us the same. Your steadfast love endures forever. It doesn't fail or falter. We we praise you that you love us not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of your promise. God, we thank you that you meet us in this time as we come before you broken and weak and weary, asking for you to fill us with your spirit afresh to draw us into intimate relationship with you again. We thank you that you say, perfect, perfect, I I can work with that. And so we ask this morning that you help imperfect people to hear your word, that you help an imperfect preacher seek not to be clever, but to be clear. God, apply your words to our hearts this morning. Change us. We are, we are done with church as usual. We, we want to meet you. We want to walk with you not only during this time, but all of our time, all of our days. Speak to us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we'll just pick it up in... Verse 12, got the Galileans speaking, people are like, what is happening? And we read, they were all astounded and amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're just drunk on new wine. Peter stood up. 
And let me just take a pause right there because here is a miracle in and of itself. Peter stands up. This is the same Peter when asked if he was following Jesus, when being accused of being a disciple of Jesus by a little servant girl in the dark of night by a fire, denied it. Not once, not twice, but three times. And the third time by calling down curses upon his own head. This is the Peter who hid away like a coward when it seemed as if Jesus was dead. That same Peter is now standing up to proclaim Jesus to hundreds and thousands of people. This is what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a Christian. When the Holy Spirit comes to you and gives you faith to believe in Christ, He takes cowards and He turns them into those who are courageous. It takes those who have small hearts and a fear of man and he shows them how big God is. He causes those fears to shrivel up. Friends, I want you to know that the, the same spirit, the same power that caused Peter to go from being a coward to courageously proclaiming the gospel lives in you if your faith is in Christ. And he'll use you just the same that he used Peter. Yes, you'll be imperfect, but Jesus is always ready to forgive you. He's never holding a grudge against you. Like, friend, if you've had a rough week this week, if you've had a rough life, Jesus isn't mad at you. He's not holding a grudge against you. Not holding out on you. He's giving you grace upon grace. He's bidding you, come to me, you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I will pour out my spirit and you will be my witness. I mean, what he said in uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, right? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The promise is being fulfilled and the command is being lived out. Peter's filled with the power of the Spirit. And he is witnessing. Peter stood up. And so can you. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. And so Peter says, look, I know it's five o'clock somewhere, but it is nine o'clock here, y'all. And these people, uh, they haven't had their lucky charms. They, even haven't, they haven't had their coffee yet. Like, they're, they're not drunk. That's not what's going on. He says, let me tell you what's going on. Verse 16. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And so he's quoting scripture here. This is the book of Joel, minor prophet, not minor in importance, but minor because he's smaller than the really big prophets, okay? And so uh, Joel says, And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. 
then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter opens up here by doing a little bit of what we like to call biblical theology. And so what he's doing is he's taking this portion of Joel and he's going to show us how uh, that piece of the story of the Bible fits together with all the other pieces to tell us about who Jesus is. Right? He's overcoming an error that uh, is all too prevalent in our day, right? It's like when we read the Bible, we read it as being primarily about us or as if it were like our roadmap to life. There's a whole bunch of wisdom in there. And yeah, yeah, there's wisdom in the Bible good principles for living, but that's not what it's primarily about. The Bible isn't primarily about you. It's primarily about what Jesus has done to save you, right? And so Peter is saying, uh, the Bible, all of it is about Jesus, and let me show you how Joel tells us about Jesus. Ultimately, he's going to argue that Joel tells us about Jesus by predicting the events of Pentecost, that Jesus is the one who ushers in the last days, that he is the Lord who sits upon the throne. He's the Messiah that all the Jews have been waiting for. And so he quotes Joel, and it will be in the last days. This phrase, last days, Peter's arguing that the last days have begun. And now, if you're like me, you're going, last days, that seems like like a short period of time, right? You're thinking like a couple days, maybe a week. But that's not, that's not how you should think of the phrase here. You should think of the phrase last days as like an installment. And so, uh, or an era, right? It's the last kind of chapter of the story of the Bible. But it's going to go on for a while, right? It's gone on a couple thousand years now. We've been in these last days. Peter's going to tell us how this began in a second. But uh, it, it helps me to think about it if, if I think about like a series of books I love fantasy books. It's really nerdy. Uh, but what happens, you get caught up in a series, and there's like nine books, and you wait for the tenth to come out, and that's like the last book, right? And so you can maybe think of um, Tolkien's uh, Return of the King. is the last in that trilogy, Lord of the Rings. A whole lot of stuff happens in that book. Maybe in a more contemporary sense, you think of uh, Deathly Hallows and Harry Potter. Like a whole lot of stuff happens in there. It's a big section of time. It's not just this itty-bitty period of time. And so likewise with the last days, there's a long stretch of time. And an important thing when considering prophecy, you have to recognize that there is often an already and a not yet to it. And so you can think of it like this. Uh, the prophets write prophecy as if they're down here in the valley looking up at the mountains. Now, if you're down in the valley and you look up at the mountains, it looks like all those peaks are like right next to each other, right in a row. What happens is when, when you go up Beech Grove over here and you get on top of the mountain and you look out on, you know, them peaks are far away from one another. There's, there's quite the distance. These mountains look like they are right next to each other, but, you know, that's, that's a ways. The same thing happens with prophecy. Prophets kind of view it from the valley and they write it down, and it almost always reads like all this stuff's happened at the same time. But when we see prophecy fulfilled, it usually has like some of this is fulfilled now and then you're going to have to wait on the rest of it. And that's, that's what's happening here, right? The, the Spirit of God being poured out is fulfilled at Pentecost, right? That's 17 and 18. You've got sons and daughters prophesying, old men, young men, old women, young women, uh, those who are servants or slaves, kings and, and queens. It, what this means is God's Spirit has been poured out on all of God's people, regardless of sex, regardless of age, regardless of social status. God's Spirit has been poured out on all of them, and they 
are prophesying. Prophecy has a really broad range of meaning throughout the Bible, uh, but at a minimum, it means declaring the wondrous works of God. Uh, if you look up at verse 11, what are these 120 so or so disciples declaring? The magnificent acts of God. They are prophesying. This is being fulfilled. You get up to, to 19 through 21, it starts to get a little fuzzier, right? Like, I, I will display wonders in the heaven. I will display signs in the earth and the sun will be turned to darkness. Now listen, I think some of this has happened, right? Uh, think about signs on earth in the ministry of Jesus. He does signs and wonders. A sign in the heaven. Well, Jesus just ascended into the heavens behind a cloud in chapter 1, uh, 9 through 11. What about the, the sun turned to darkness? What's that make you think of when Luke writes those words? Uh, the crucifixion becomes dark. As God's judgment falls, Matthew records an earthquake. Luke also tells us that the curtain in the temple splits. And so you have natural wonders. I think it's part, and I also think we have some future stuff here, right? Stuff that I, I mean, I, you could probably make a connection if you wanted to, but I don't, I don't know how it quite fits, right? Uh, blood and fire, cloud of smoke, moon of blood. Because this stuff's going to happen before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And what I want you to see in Joel's prophecy is that there is a, a warning, and then there's hope offered. And so he's saying, uh, Pentecost is here. God is fulfilling his promises, and that's part of the hope. But there's also a warning. God's judgment, which is what's symbolized by the darkness and the moon of blood and the day of the Lord, God's judgment is coming. There's going to come a day when each and every person stands before God and gives an account of their life. And God's justice will prevail. He's going to right every wrong. He is going to address every evil. And here, here's the bad news, friends. You and I are evil. You and I have chosen over and over and over again to de-God God and act as if we were God, doing things our way, following our hearts rather than listening to God's voice. This is the essence of sin. Doing it my way rather than God's way. This is what has ushered in death and sickness, brokenness into our world. And God is coming to set his world right. So, so let me be clear. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and me deserve death. You and I are evil. We have set ourselves up as enemies against God. We are insurrectionists in rebellion against a good and mighty king who is going to do justice. He's going to end evil which comes to, brings us to the hope. Because if he's going to end evil, that would mean he would have to end us. But the hope in the warning tells us about how God ends evil without ending us. Verse 21, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Don't miss this. Originally when Joel wrote this, the word Lord is it's in reference to Yahweh, the personal name of Israel's God. 
Here, Lord, Peter's arguing, is going to refer to Jesus. And so he's kind of tipping his hat to Jesus' deity here. He's making his argument. He's saying that Jesus' name is the name upon which you must call to be saved. Because the way that God ends evil without ending us is by putting our sin on Jesus' shoulders and pouring out his wrath on Jesus, who dies in our place for our sin, rather than giving it to us. So that what's happening at Calvary, what happens when you trust in Jesus is that he says, you take my blessing that I've earned with my perfect life and I will take your curse that you have earned with your rebellious life. And so when we trust in Christ, his death becomes our death and his life becomes our life. So that we can say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ, just no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is how we are made right with God. Not by our performance, not by doing good things, not by coming to church, not by praying all the time, not by reading our Bibles. No, none of that can make us right with God. Only faith in Jesus. We bring to him our nothing and he gives to us everything. Ephesians tells us every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. This is the essence of salvation. Jesus wins for us what we have no right to. And all we have to do is repent of our sin and to trust in him, to to bend our knee to him as king. I wonder, have you called out to Christ as king? Peter's arguing here that Jesus is the Lord upon whom we must call to be saved because he's the one who's poured out the Holy Spirit of God. makes this clear in verse 33. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. He's not only going to argue that Jesus is Lord on the basis of the pouring out of the Spirit, he's also going to argue that Jesus is Lord on the basis of his resurrection from the dead. Look with me at verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man, attested, that word just means like proven, attested to, proven to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. I love this. Peter's like, Y'all know who Jesus is. You saw him do signs and wonders. You saw it. You saw the miracles. And when he was doing these things, I want you to know, friends, that it was God proclaiming that this Jesus, who is a man like you and me, is more than that. God is testifying to Jesus' greatness through his miracles. Jesus is more than you think. And I do love, he says, just as you yourselves know. Like, nobody's contesting these miracles. Especially early on in the church, even the opponents of Christianity, they didn't try to undermine the miracles. What they would do is they would say that Jesus did his miracles uh, through sorcery or through Satanism, like devil worship. Remember the Pharisees? Hey, you're casting out demons by Beelzebul, another name for Satan. And Jesus is like, nah, you got it wrong. House divided against itself cannot stand. So nobody's contesting the miracles. And what we see right away is Peter saying, he is a man, but he's more than that. God's proven him to be more than a man through his miracles. Verse 23. 
Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people, the Romans, to nail him to a cross and kill him. I love that Peter puts divine sovereignty, God's predestination of all things, right next to human responsibility and human choice. He says, uh, in the same breath, without flinching, God is in control of all things. You are responsible for the decisions that you make. I, I love it. Like some folks will come and go, well, that's a paradox, it's a contradiction. The Bible doesn't have a problem with it. It assumes that, that this antinomy is resolved in the person of God, who, let's face it, is smarter than you and I. God is in control, and you're responsible. You crucified the Messiah. You're going, well, why is... Why is Peter bringing this up right here, right now? And the, the reason is he's going to prove to them, he's trying to prove to them that Jesus is the Messiah even though he was crucified. Because you understand that crucified Messiah is oxymoronic, right? It's like saying frozen steam. What? Crucified Messiah. Messiahs don't get crucified. Messiahs win, right? Messiahs come and they conquer they don't end up on a cross. We see this in Peter's life, right? Peter has that great confession. You know, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives him that Sunday school answer. He's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, that a boy, Peter. The spirit has revealed this to you. And then moments later, like Jesus tells them, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And Peter stands up and says, no, no, Jesus, you've got it wrong. See, you're the Messiah. <laughs> Messiahs don't go to the cross. Foolish. And Jesus, you remember what Jesus says to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. Now listen, Jews had to, had to come up with a, a category. Peter's trying to explain to them that crucified Messiah is actually how Jesus is the Messiah. But they, they have a hard time with that. And Peter did too, and I want you to recognize, I think you do too. We have trouble with a crucified Messiah, and here's why. We like to win. We like to win. We like comfort. We like, we like our small g God to look like us. We, we like him to not ask that much of us. Like to do our own thing. And so when we think of what God is like in our own imagination, usually imagining, imagine him as a God that's you know, warm and fuzzy, a little bit like Santa Claus, just gives me good things. And, you know, he, doesn't, he only needs attention about once a year, you know, maybe twice, Christmas and Easter. I'm good. But that's not, that's not the Messiah that we have. We have a Messiah who, by worldly standards, it's a loser. And what happens is, is when you follow a Messiah who's a loser, it is, he beckons you to be a loser with him. Like, I hate to break it to you, uh, if you are a Christian, you are a loser. Blessedly so. Jesus bids all who would follow him to turn from their sin, turn from their way of life, pick up a cross, an instrument of torture, and to follow his way, which is the way of a cross. 
says, die to yourself and follow me. What, what did he, following Jesus often feels like death. He calls us to do things we would never do on our own. If you're really following Jesus and you evaluate your life, you're going to go, there's a whole lot of things that I'm doing that I would never do otherwise. And if you go, I am following Jesus, like if your life looks the same following Jesus as it would if you didn't follow Jesus, then you're not following Jesus. You with me? He calls you to do weird things. I mean, top of the list is right now, Sunday morning, beginning of the week, giving an hour or so of your time to come and hear his word proclaimed and to pray and to sing and to, to gather. He calls us to, to pray during the week, to read your, your Bibles, to evangelize. I mean, the list goes on and on, to, to repent, to, to, to be baptized, on and on and on, into the, the very nooks and crannies of your life so you're going, what ways can I serve those who are different than me? How can I love my neighbor as myself? How can I sacrifice more for the glory of God? The primary question of your life switches from what's best for me to what will most honor Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. Christianity comes with a cross before it ever gets you to a crown. God has not called us to comfort not called us to be great conquerors. No, our Messiah was conquered. Ultimately, he brings a victory, but first, for anyone, any one of us, there's a cross. There's a dying to self that we have to do daily. It's not easy. And I want you to know, this, this verse should give you great encouragement. He says, Jesus was crucified not because he screwed his ministry up, just drop the ball. Like, he didn't pull a, a J.R. Smith at the end of the finals the other night, right? Y'all don't watch basketball. Come on now. He made a big mistake. Google it. He, he didn't mess up. He went there on purpose. Like, this was according to the plan of God. So listen, this is the encouragement. If God can use the horrors of the cross to bring about our good and his glory, he can use the horrors of your life to bring about your good and his glory. So that in your worst of suffering, in the midst of those tears and that trial, you can look up to heaven and allow the sun to come in a little bit and see that, that rainbow and say, God is at work. You are my strength and my portion. There's nothing on earth I desire beside you. You are my everything, and I, in the midst of this darkness, I trust you. And you can trust him, because he's good, and he's all-powerful. And he, if you are following him, is working all things together for your good and for his glory. And so pick up that cross, my friends. Follow Jesus, die to yourself, and what you will find is that you are happier than you ever imagined you could be more satisfied than you ever imagined you could be because you are walking with the God who knows what it is to suffer. A God who doesn't just stand up on the mountain and look down on you and wonder what it's like, but a God who became like you in order to save you. What an incredible 
God we serve. And we are responsible for how we respond to him. You're going to be held responsible for how you respond to Jesus. You will either bend the knee to him as Lord and receive his blessing, or you will continue in your rebellion and receive your curse. The choice is yours. Peter continues, He was a crucified Messiah, but that was according to God's will. Verse 24, God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, he's quoting Psalm 16 here, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne, seeing what was to come. He spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He is not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. So what's going on? Why does Peter quote? Why does he quote Psalm 16? And he tells us right there to show us that one greater than David is here. You're like, David wrote that psalm about himself, didn't he? You're like, well, yeah, kind of like David. Uh, God saved David a whole lot of times, bailed him out. But Peter says it's, David couldn't have written this about himself because if you go to David's tomb, we don't know where it is now, but, but they knew where it was then, right? Just like we all know uh, where George Washington is buried, Mount Vernon, right? I think. Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. Or we all know where the tomb of the unknown soldier is. Like They all knew where the tomb of David was. And Peter is saying, go to the tomb of David, y'all, and tell me what you find there. David died. He decayed. Now go to the tomb of Jesus and tell me what you see. See, Jesus is this holy one that David wrote about. And God would not let him see decay. God planned for him to die and God planned to raise him up from the dead again because death could not hold him. I love verse 24. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Always reminds me of uh, S.M. Lockridge's famous sermon. He says, I can't do it real well. But he's like, you know, death Couldn't handle him in the grave. Couldn't hold him. That's my king. Do you know him? That's another one for you to YouTube later. It's awesome. But I love, that's the picture we have here. We have a really, really awesome picture in verse 24. We have actually a mixed metaphor. The, The phrase agony of death there, if we take it back to the psalm that it's being quoted from the portion of Scripture it's being quoted from in Psalm 18, you put it into Hebrew, uh, it ends up meaning cords or ropes of death. And so on one hand, we have this image of uh, the ropes of death, like trying to bind Jesus, but the Holy One of God cannot be bound by death. And then here's my favorite image, again, mixed metaphor, pains of death, agony of death. The word for pains or agony here is typically used in association with childbirth. 
And so here's the image that you just never expect. Death is pictured as if it were in labor, labor pains with Jesus. Like when Jesus is dead, uh, death is like, I have got to push this out. I've got to expel him from my womb. For those of you that have given birth, you know what this is like, right? There comes a time where you just got to push that baby out. You know, Get this baby out of me. I can't help. Anytime I think of this kind of discussion, I think of when Owen was born. And I've probably told the story so many times. I'll try to tell a little different this time. But when it was time for him to be born, we were in the hospital for just a few hours. And eventually the nurses uh, checked our progress. And they come back and they say, oh, baby's going to be here any minute. We'll be right back. And so they all leave the room and leave me in the room. And I'm like, how long did y'all spend in school? Like, this doesn't seem like a good idea to just leave me here all by myself. Like, she's crazy right now. They left me in there. And I, of course, you know how the story goes. Uh, they leave, and a few moments later, Chelsea's like, I got to push. Like, baby is coming. And I'm like, are you sure you don't just want some more ice chips? And, you know, just wait a couple minutes. She's like, no, baby is coming. And so... I did what any good husband would do. I took a deep breath, rolled up my sleeves, and I yelled down the hall, help! Thankfully, they arrived in the nick of time. And here's the point. The baby was coming whether they were there or not. They had to push that baby out. This is the image we have of death. It's in pain. It's in labor pains. It's got to get Jesus out. Why? Because God had determined that his Holy One wouldn't see decay. Yes. And because death had no claim on Jesus. Right? The wages of sin is death. Jesus was sinless. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for sin. Sin was punished in him. And so death had no claim on Jesus. And, and listen to me, friends. If you are in Christ, death has no claim on you either. Because you are no longer in your sins, but in Christ. Death won't be able to handle you. The grave will not be able to hold you. A resurrection is coming. Praise God. And a resurrection has come. Jesus has risen from the dead as the first fruits, as the guarantee that our resurrection will come. And Peter says, this is what makes him Lord and Messiah. He's poured out his spirit. He's risen from the dead and he's ascended to the throne. Look with me. Verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He quotes there Psalm 110, verse 1, which, uh, if you're playing Bible trivia sometime, is the most often quoted portion of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It gets referred to a lot. And so, I want to show you it. I feel like our, it's not super clear in our translation here. So can you turn back in your Bibles if you have one? Uh, just turn to Psalm 110, verse 1 with me for a few moments. And I want to show you what's going on here. 
This is what it says. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now all y'all are like, why did you just make us turn there? Pointless. But look closely. That first Lord is in all capital letters. The second one is not. And the reason is this. When you see Lord in your English Bible in all capital letters, what you have there is the personal name of God. Right? In English, the letters are Y-H-W-H. Probably pronounced Yahweh. You may have heard it mispronounced as Jehovah in the past. So Y-H-W-H, you have the personal name of God there. And the reason that they do it like that is because Jewish tradition believed that the name of God was so holy that you shouldn't even speak it. And so what they would do when they came across Yahweh or Y-H-W-H in Scripture is instead of saying it, they would say Adonai, which means, you guessed it, Lord. And so in an effort to maintain that tradition, most all of our English translations bring that right across, and they just translate Y-H-W-H Yahweh as Lord. And they'll tell you that at the front end of your Bible if you've ever read it there. The editors will be like, this is what we're doing. Uh, God's personal name shows up. We're going to use Lord in all caps. And they're going, that's great. Thanks for for the, the study lesson, but how is it relevant? This is how it's relevant. It just makes it clearer to us what's going on. Let me read it to you now. David is writing. This is the declaration of Yahweh to my Lord, David's Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Here's Peter's point. The one that is greater than David, who would be David's Lord? Well, it's not one who is simply a son of David. His sons would be considered not as great as David, but someone greater than David, who's in the line of David, but whose origin is from of old. David would only say this to his Messiah. That's the point. Jesus is the Messiah who is sitting on the throne at the right hand of God. And that's Peter's big point here in verse 36. This is the crescendo. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And we're going to walk through the 37 through 41 next week, but the application, primary application this morning is this. You're going to see if you read those later that those listening go, we're guilty. We're guilty. What must we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord, and you must pledge your fidelity to him if you want to live. Jesus is Lord. He deserves all of your life. If he's not Lord of everything in your life, then he is not Lord at all in your life. This is not a question of, Did you walk an aisle once years ago? Do you intellectually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? No, this is a question of whether or not Jesus is Lord in your life. What it means for Jesus to be Lord in your life is it means that he calls the shots, 
that he tells you what to do. He tells you how to think and how to live. That's what it means for him to be Lord. All of us, listen, all of us are serving someone or something as Lord. Whether a friend or a spouse or a relationship or your children or a sporting event or games. My PlayStation got lightning to this week. It was a struggle for me. Idolatry there. Whatever you have, you're serving something, right? Dylan said it well, you got to serve somebody. And so the question is, if you look at your life honestly, who's your Lord? Who are you serving? Is it Jesus? Acknowledging him as Lord means taking up a cross and following him. Christianity without a cross is Satanism. It is no Christianity that saves no one. Friends, the call is to die to yourself that you might live to God. Turn from your sins and believe in Christ. That path of discipleship begins with repentance, it continues in repentance, and it shows up initially, we'll see next week, in baptism exhort you. If, you haven't, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you haven't made Jesus Lord, do it. Talk to somebody about it. If you're here and you're a Christian, just want to just rejoice in this wonderful truth this morning. Rejoice in the gospel that Jesus is seated on the throne at the right hand of God. That he is alive. He's feeling great today. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our good and mighty King. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us and empowers us to live lives devoted to you. We thank you for your forgiveness that is given to all who will come to you and and cry out for it all who will call upon your name. God, thank you that you you save us and that your love doesn't fail. Thank you that death doesn't have the last word, but you do because you are the resurrection and the life and the one who trusts in you, though they die, yet shall they live. We thank you that you are seated on the throne in this age and that you will be in the age to come. And this morning, God, we just sing to you in our heart of hearts, hallelujah, what a savior you are. You are our king. We know no other king except for the king who is seated in heaven at the right hand of God, whose name is Jesus. You are so good to us. Help us to love you well and to walk with you, Lord. Thank you for going to the cross for us being condemned for us so that we might be exonerated, so that we might experience freedom, so that we might go from being enemies of God to being the family of God. So we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.